You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. My fourth year of Bible college, I was an intern at an evangelical free church in northern Saskatchewan. And uh, one of my jobs and my responsibilities in that church was to teach the teen Sunday school, teen boys Sunday school class. And so the first couple of weeks we started off and I just taught some generic lessons from some passages of scripture and, and I began to quiz them and ask them what they were going through in their lives and what things they needed to have addressed. And I really wanted our Sunday school lessons to be something that would serve to uh, sort of equip them for life and to disciple them because there was about half a dozen of those boys that um, I sort of took into my inner circle and I really worked with those closely to really disciple them and train them and I only had eight months with them and I wanted to turn them into disciples of Christ. And so as it as it turned out as I was interviewing them and talking with them and in the course of our conversation, I found out that in their public schools, which most of those teen boys were attending, they were being assaulted with biological Darwinian evolution and the anti-God atheistic philosophies of the public school system. And so they said, that is really what we're struggling with. And some of the boys, as I was talking with them, I came to find out that some of them were even beginning to doubt the scriptures and to doubt their faith because of what they were learning about origins from their school teachers and their science teachers. So I said, beginning next Sunday, when I finally realized that this is what was going on, I said, beginning next Sunday, we are going to, I'm going to teach you about the subject of origins. We're going to study the doctrine of creation in the next several months. We'll take however long it takes to get through the doctrine of creation, and I want to try and equip you to stand for Christ in your science class with your public school teachers. And they were excited about this. So we started into sort of a creation evolution subject in, in the teen boys Sunday school class. And we would pull from the scriptures as, as we went through there. And I taught them the scriptures and I taught them about evolution. And I was trying to equip them. And there was one particular young boy there. His name was Seth. And he was really bold in his public school. In fact, on Tuesdays for lunch, we went to his school and we met with, with him and with a couple of the other Christians, Christians who were in that school. We met for prayer on Tuesdays. And he began to interact with his science teacher and ask questions and give his science teacher information and sort of raise issues for discussion in the science class. And then Seth and some of the other students were doing this as well. They would come back on Sunday and they would say, well, our teacher says this, how would you answer that? So I started to sort of insert my thing into the public school system through these students who were being willing to be used by the Lord to raise these issues in their class and discuss them. Finally, one day, Seth said, uh, I, I said to him, you know, this really frustrates me. I wish that I could have the opportunity to come and to teach creationism in your, Sunday, in your science class so that they could hear the creationist position. And Seth said, well, I'll ask the teacher, would you be willing to do it if he says yes? Now, you know how you're willing to do, agree to do almost anything if you're relatively certain beyond any shadow of a doubt that you would never be asked to actually do it? And I thought to myself, an evangelical Christian associate youth pastor invited into the public school system in Canada to teach creationism. What are the chances? So I said, sure. Next week, Seth came back. You're in. I said, I'm in what? You're into the school. 
The teacher wants you to come on such and such a day, and the teacher requested that you come on a Monday because on Monday we have two hours of science classes back-to-back, and he wants you to take both hours instead of just one. The teacher was not a believer. didn't believe in creation, but he wanted to hear what a creationist believed. So I jumped at the opportunity, and I went into the public school system, and I had two hours with those students to explain the creationist model of origins and to answer their objections and their questions. And the science teacher sat there the entire time, and he was interested. He was polite. He asked questions, and he affirmed some of the things that I was saying. And as I quoted some of the evolutionists, he would affirm that that's indeed what an evolutionist believed. It was a wonderful time. I had an hour and a half after after you take out the breaks, the class breaks. I had an hour and a half with these students to explain creationism to them. And when I went in there, I did not go into the public school system with any kind of grandiose expectations of leading every student in that classroom to Christ. I didn't even go in there to present Christ. I didn't present Christ at all. I didn't talk about the cross. I didn't talk about the atonement. I didn't talk about sin or anything. My goal in going in there was a rather modest goal. I only wanted to do one thing, and that was to put a stone in their shoe. I wanted them to understand that the proposition that we get in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, I wanted them to understand that that is not only unbelievable, that it's not impossible. It is a believable and a possible proposition that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And all I wanted them to do was to hear a creationist articulate creationism because I believe that the creation model of origins, creationism, when properly articulated and when properly defended, can hold its own in the marketplace of ideas, particularly in in the scientific marketplace of ideas. So all I wanted them to do was to put something in, all I wanted to do was put something in their mind so that every time they sat there and heard evolution taught, it would raise in their minds some questions. All I wanted to do was lay the foundation upon which the other students in that class, many of whom were in my youth group, the Christian ones, I wanted to lay a foundation that they could build a gospel presentation on. I had to begin with creation and get the students to understand creationism is possible and it's believable. Because then it must logically follow that if Genesis 1-1 is true, then everything else in the Bible is not only possible, but it follows logically. And that's all I wanted to do. But if Genesis 1-1 is not true, then everything else in the Bible is what? Superstitious nonsense. It's Babel. So why believe any of it? Now the idea of starting at creation in order to get to the cross, I never got there, I just laid the foundation. The idea of starting at creation in order to build to the cross is not unique with me. I actually stole the methodology from the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 17, that's exactly what Paul does. We are looking at his address before the Areopagus in Athens. And so you'll need your Bibles open to Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul wants these Athenians to turn from their idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is his object. He wants to take idol worshipers and turn them into God followers or Christ followers. But Paul doesn't come into Athens and begin by saying, God has a wonderful plan for your life, but sin has separated you from God, and so here are four steps back to be reconciled with God. He doesn't begin with that. Paul doesn't begin with his testimony. He doesn't even begin with Christ. He doesn't go back to the nation of Israel and explain the prophets and the fulfillment of Scripture. Where does Paul go to? He goes all the way back to the beginning of time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
At that moment when God spoke into existence everything that is, that's where Paul takes him back to. Now he wants to get him to Christ, but before he can get them to Christ, he has to take them through the cross, and they will never be able to understand the cross if they do not understand the curse, and they'll never be able to understand the curse unless he takes them back to creation. Because before Epicureans and Stoics, they don't believe in supernatural creation. They believe that everything was on a long, evolving, circular process, that God was not associated with anything or involved in anything in our creation. And so before he can get them to Christ, he begins a creation. You need to understand something. There is a God and he created the world and everything that is in it. And that's where he begins. Last week I gave you a three-point or three-part outline for this message of the Apostle Paul. Verses 22 through 24, God is the creator of all things. We looked at that last week. This week we're going to look at, begin looking at verses 25 through 29. God is the sustainer of all things. And then verses 30 through 31, God is the judge of all things. God is creator. We looked at that last week. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Apostle Paul says in verse 24, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. I just want you to stop right there. The fact that God is the sustainer of all things logically follows the fact that God is the creator of all things. If He has created everything, then everything that is created depends upon His for its, Him for its continual existence. The fact that God upholds all things by the word of His power. Hebrews 1.3 That Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of the nature of God, He in His power by His Word upholds all things. It must be so that He who created everything would Himself sustain everything that is created. And to sort of flesh out this concept, the Apostle Paul makes three assertions. The first first is that God, or Christ, is Lord of all. That He is Lord of all. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He is the Lord of heaven and of earth. Is there anything that exists that is not part of heaven or earth? Those are the two extremes. In other words, Paul is saying, He is Lord of all things. This is a declaration of the sovereignty of God. There is nothing that exists, there is nothing that has ever existed, and there is nothing that will ever exist that is not under His absolute sovereign rule and power. Nothing. Not one atom, not one molecule, not one creature has ever existed or will ever exist that is not subject to Him. He is Lord of heaven and of earth. That's a monotheistic statement. The Athenians had more gods than they could number. And gods everywhere. They even had an altar to the unknown god. Polytheists. The most religious people in the world, it was said, of the ancient Athenians. They worshipped everything, everywhere, idols all over the place. And Paul makes a very monotheistic statement. The God, one, not one of the gods who created the world, but the God who created the world and everything in it, He Himself, the one God, is Lord of all things. He is sovereign ruler. That is a statement not only of His sovereignty, it is a statement of His ownership. 
as Creator, and we covered this briefly last week, as Creator, God is owner of all things. God has absolute right over me as a creature because He owns me. He owns me because He created me. And men deny their Creator not because it's illogical to have a Creator, not because believing in religion is a crutch or it's irrational. Men deny their Creator because they do not want to be owned. They do not want to recognize that there is somebody who because He created me, He owns me and He can demand of me anything He wants justly. They don't want to, they don't want to recognize that. But all creatures of our God and King are owned by Him. And there's coming a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And men do not like that. And so they deny that they have a Creator. They do that so they can escape His ownership claims. It's a statement of His sovereignty. It's a statement of His ownership. The fact that He is Lord of all is also a statement of His rulership. You see, God as Creator is free to do with His creation anything that He pleases to do with His creation. And He doesn't answer to His creation. Does not the potter have a right over the clay to do with the clay what He pleases? Is that not what Jeremiah says? Is that not what Isaiah said? Is that not what Paul said? He's the potter. We are the clay. And He can make one vessel for destruction. He can make another vessel for glory. It is up to the potter to determine what He wants to do with the clay. And He can create something and then He can destroy it. And it's not immoral for Him to do so. He has right as Creator over His creation to do with His creation whatever pleases Him. He is the Sovereign. He is Lord of heaven, and He is Lord of earth. And so He owns us, and He rules us, and He's free to do with us as He pleases. Men don't like that truth. Have you noticed that? We bristle at that. By nature, we bristle at that. We prefer a God who would pamper us and stroke us and revolve everything around us and our needs. But that is not the God as He is presented in Scripture. Our God is sovereign, He is Lord of all, He is ruler of all, and He is owner of all. So if that's true of Him, then He cannot dwell in temples made with hands, the Apostle Paul says. The end of verse 24, similar to what, similar to what uh, Solomon said when he built the temple. Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. If He's Lord of all, sovereign and ruler, if there's one God and He's created all things and He sustains all things, then you cannot confine Him to four walls no matter how large or magnificent those walls might be. He cannot be brought into a temple. And so in this one sentence, the Apostle Paul has tipped over every idol in Athens, made every throne, every shrine, every altar, every temple absolutely useless. There is one God and He cannot be contained in temples. Now Paul is going to go on to explain a little bit about the nature of who this God is. Look at verse 25. Not only is He Lord of all, but second, He is the giver of all. Verse 25, nor is He served by human hands as though He Himself needed anything. What a profound statement. He is not served by human hands as though He Himself needed anything. Now, verse 25 contains two of the most magnificent truths about the nature of God. And you may ask yourself, why is the Apostle Paul wasting this stuff on the Athenian philosophers? It's because their concept of God is all wrong. They have idols. They have temporal, physical, limited, finite gods. And the Apostle Paul is attempting to lift their eyes and their hearts off of their idols and off of themselves and to give them a picture of the grandeur and the majesty of the God who is God. 
So he says he's not served by hands as if he needed anything. Friends, here is where our thoughts and our concepts of God become completely puerile and are absolutely unworthy of God entirely. We tend to think of God in terms of Him needing something, don't we? Does God need anything? Does He need you? Does He need His creation? We need things, don't we? We're needy creatures. Everything we do, every moment of every day is done out of necessity because we need something. We need other things to exist. We need water. We need air. We need nutrients. We need clothing. We need this and we need that. And so everything that we do, we do because we are needy creatures. We are dependent upon our existence. We are dependent for our existence upon other needy creatures. And so all of creation needs itself. But need is a concept that is wholly foreign to God. You cannot say God needs anything. You can never talk of necessity in the divine being because if God needs anything, then it is to admit a lack of something in His character, some sort of moral or some sort of physical or some sort of emotional or spiritual deficiency. Is God deficient in anything? He does not need anything. When I first became a believer, I read Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer's classic book. And if you've read that book, then you know just how simple and yet profound Tozer has a way of describing the attributes of God. And I found myself going back to Knowledge of the Holy time and again over the course of my Christian life as I meditate on different attributes of God. My first copy is, is highlighted and scribbled in and dog-eared and the pages are yellow and, and they're bent back and forth and the binding's coming apart. Phenomenal book. And in that, regarding the need of God, Tozer writes this, to admit the existence of a need in God is to admit incompleteness in the divine being. Need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the Creator. God has a voluntary relation to everything He has made, but He has no necessary relation to anything outside of Himself. In other words, if God is related to or shows interest in or expresses love or grace to anything, it is not out of necessity. It is voluntary. If God shows me grace, it is not because He needs to. It's because He chooses to. He doesn't need me. And anytime He's related to you and I in any capacity or does anything to us, it is not because of some need that has arisen within the divine being. Tozer writes this, His interest in His creatures arises from His sovereign good pleasure and not from any need that those creatures can supply nor from any completeness that they can bring to Him who is complete in Himself. Why did God create the universe? Did He need to? You know, the question of why God created everything still can't be answered. It occupies the minds of theologians. Why did God create the universe? Well, we know it's not because He needed anything. Well, you say, well, He created it for His glory because He is glorified in it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and for His glory they were all created. Did He need to be glorified? Did God at some point in eternity past say, you know, I'm lacking in glory. I don't have enough. My glory is deficient. There is a defect in my glory. It is not filled up to the measure that it should be, and so I need to remedy the lack of glory that I have, and so I will create something, and that will glorify me, and thus fill up my glory, and I will be a complete being. Is that how God works? Why ever it is that He created the world, friends, I know one thing, it's not because He needed to. Not at all. He is no more God, He is no fuller as God, no more complete today 
than He was before He created the world and everything in it. There's no such thing as need in the divine being. Does He need your service and your sacrifices and your offerings? Does He need those things? Psalm 50, God is rebuking the wicked. And He says in Psalm 50, verses 9-12, through I will take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. I don't need your sacrifices. You bring an animal to the temple and you sacrifice it, you think I'm hungry? God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. i got beasts in the field aplenty. They thought that He needed them. He needs our sacrifice. He needs our offering. He needs our worship. He needs our glory. Perish the thought, my friends. God needs absolutely nothing. Isn't that what Paul says? He's not served by human hands as though He needed anything. He is complete in Himself. Does He need your belief? Does He need your faith? You know how many appeals to people to place their faith in Christ are based upon the premise that God needs them? God has done everything in His power to get you into heaven. He just needs you to believe. If you would just believe, you could have such a great life. But God needs you to trust in Him. He needs your faith. He needs your obedience. And so we try and jerk people into the kingdom, portraying for them a God who is needy. He needs your belief. You know He doesn't. Doesn't need your obedience. Doesn't need your faith. Doesn't need your service. Doesn't need your sacrifices. Do you realize, my friends, that if you were to cease to exist right now, for all of eternity, it would take nothing away from God or His perfections. Nothing away from Him whatsoever. He absolutely does not need His creation or His creatures. E.W. Tozer writes this, Were all human beings suddenly to become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night, for these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. And so were every man on earth to become an atheist, it could not affect God in any way. He is what He is in Himself without regard to any other. To believe in Him adds nothing to His perfections, and to doubt Him takes nothing away. Does He need you? Not at all. And friends, your concept of God will always be idolatrous until you come to the point of understanding He does not need you. And if you were to cease to exist, and I were to cease to exist, nothing would change in the nature and the character of God. He does not need me. And I don't fill any void in Him at all. And neither do you. He is what He is without relation to anything else. He needs nothing outside of Himself. And so anytime He deals with anybody or anything outside of Himself, it is a voluntary act and not a necessary act. Does that make sense? That's heavy stuff, isn't it? We think of God in terms of being a a needy God. We are needful creatures. And so it is quite natural for us to superimpose our necessities and our needs upon the divine being and to think that He is somehow like us in that. But the rebuke of Psalm 50, verse 21 is this, to the wicked, you thought I was altogether like you. But he's not. He's not needful at all. He doesn't need my offerings. He doesn't need my sacrifices. He does not need anything that I can provide. He is complete in himself. Paul says, he cannot be served with human hands as though he needed anything. So then you ask, well, Jim, why in the world would I serve? Right? In fact, why would I preach? He doesn't need me. So next Sunday, I'll sit down in the pew and we'll all stand here for an hour and look at a blank stage because He needs none of us. Why should I serve? Why should I give? Why should I evangelize? 
Why should I do anything if God doesn't need me? A.W. Tozer answers the question, and here's what he says. The blessed news is that the God who needs no one has in sovereign condescension stooped to work by and in and through his obedient children. He needs no one, but when faith is present, he works through anyone. Isn't that a blessed truth? That is a glorious truth for us as creatures. He does not need us, but he stoops to use us. So you want to not serve? You want to not give? You want to not be obedient? It's your choice. But you're not going to harm God at all. You're not going to take anything from Him. You end up robbing yourself, destroying your own soul, and robbing yourself of blessings, and robbing yourself of benefits, and robbing yourself of grace. But it's certainly not going to hurt Him at all, or harm Him at all. We, he can't be served by human hands as if He needed something. Sometimes we think when our positions of ministry in the church that, well, if I wasn't here, what would everybody else do? I think God could get along just fine without you. Thanks. He could get along just fine without me. He's certainly not going to lack. You're certainly not going to lack. He doesn't need any of us. But instead, He gives to us, doesn't He? The end of verse 25, not only does God have no need in Himself, but the ironic thing is that He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He has no need, but He supplies the need of all of His creatures that need Him. He has nothing in Himself that is lacking, and yet everything that we lack, He has supplied or provided. And so He gives to all life and to all creatures life and breath and all things. He is the giver of all things. He needs nothing Himself, but He gives everything that is needed. Hebrews 1.3, He upholds all things by the word of His power. The electron in the atom exists for the simple reason that He continues to will its existence. And if at any moment He decided that He did not will its existence, it would dissolve into non-existence. The rock that exists exists because God wills its existence and He upholds its existence. And if at any moment He decided that it should not exist, it would not exist. He upholds all things by the word of His power. The stars are where the stars are, the moon in its course, the food in its season, the seasons that we experience, the sun, the rain, the moon, everything is as it is because He upholds all that He has created. He sustains it all, and yet He Himself is sustained by no one and nothing. Jesus made one of the most profound statements in all of the Gospels, and it's in one little sentence. The Father has life in Himself. The Father has life in Himself. Everything else that exists, exists because it is dependent upon the One who gave life to it. But the Father, He has life in Himself. At no time did He receive life. At no time is He regenerated in life. At no time does His life go down. And at no time can He cease to exist because He has life in Himself. Stephen Charnock in the 1600s wrote a two-volume book, The Existence and the Attributes of God. And listen to how this man describes this. He has life in his essence, not by participation. He is a son to give light and life to all creatures, but he receives not light or life from anything. And therefore he has an unlimited life, not a drop of life, but a fountain. Not a spark of a limited life, but a life transcending all bounds. He has life in himself, and all creatures have their life from and through him. The Father has life in himself. Everything else that exists, exists 
because they get their life from Him. Of nothing can it be said, I have life in myself, I need nothing else for my existence except for God. He is the only one of whom it can be said, He is the giver of all life, and if anything lives, it is because He lives and He gives it life. Your blood is being pumped by your heart right now because every beat of your heart is a gift from God. Every breath you take is a gift from God. That's what Paul says. He gives to every creature life and breath and everything. You breathe, that was a gift. Now I can make no claims on the next breath because the next one's going to be a gift as well. There's another gift. My heart beats because I have received life from the one who has life in himself. Stephen Charnock goes on to write this, What has life in itself has life without bounds and can never desert it nor be deprived of it. So that he lives necessarily and it is absolutely impossible that he should not live. Whereas all other things live and move and have their being in him as they live by his will so they can return to nothing at his word. Do you hear that? He lives and gives life to anything and at any moment he can say that's enough and take the life of anything. It is his sovereign grace to do that. He, it's his choice. Why? He's the creator of all things. And so he's the sustainer of all things. And he can cease to sustain anything at his word and at his sovereign pleasure. He has life in himself. You can't say that. Sometimes we have this concept of God that he's getting worn out. He's running out of life. As if God at the end of every year says, this last year I brought into being 900 billion creatures and that was just taxing on me. I don't know if I have enough life in me for another 900 billion next year. I better cut back production a little bit. Friends, if he were to suddenly make a thousand worlds like our own and populate them twice what our world is populated with and do that a million times, if he were to do that and give life to everything, it would not deplete his reserves at all. It would not exhaust him. It would not take away from his life. And he would do it without necessity because he doesn't need anything. How, fo how foolish and how much folly it is to think that he who supplies all our needs should need our supply. Yet that is how we think of God, is it not? And our thoughts of Him become infantile and naive and wholly unworthy of this magnificent God that we serve. He gives food in its season. He gives rain in its due course. He causes the ground to burst forth with produce and provide for all of His living creatures. Psalm 104 verse 14 says that God causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. And listen, God could starve you to death at any moment if he willed it. And he has every right to do so. He's the creator. He doesn't owe you food. He doesn't owe me water. He doesn't owe us anything. And he certainly doesn't need us to be complete or to be God. So that should cause us to be rather humble, shouldn't it? To constantly be thanking him and blessing him and honoring him and humbly standing before him, grateful for every benefit and every blessing and every measure of grace that we receive. Because he doesn't need to do any of that. He is not only Lord of all, but he is the giver of all life. And I want you to notice the third thing that the Apostle Paul says. He is, governs all things. Verse 26. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, 
Not only is He sovereign Lord over all of nature, but He is sovereign Lord over all of the nations. He made from one man, that's a reference to Adam, there was a literal Adam in a literal garden, literally at the beginning of creation, who sinned. And He made from that one man every nation that dwells on the face of the earth. And everybody comes from Adam. Now this would have assaulted the Athenian belief because all of the Stoics and the philosophers and all of the Athenians who were listening to Paul as he preached this message before the Areopagus, they believed that if you weren't a Greek, you were a barbarian. And that all of the rest of the world, they were barbarians, they were animals, elevated animals at best. But if you were a Greek, it meant that your ancestors sprung forth from the soil in native Attica. That was their belief. They came up from the dirt and they were a superior creature to everything else. So that we are Greeks and everybody else is barbarians. And here Paul just levels that, puts them all in the same field and says, God made from one man every nation of men. Your racism and your thinking that you are superior to other people is absolutely wrong. Because we all go back to Adam. You can be the blackest of black people and the whitest of white people and you have the same father. We're all brothers and we're all sisters in Adam. He made from one man all of these nations and then look at how Paul describes God's providence, His sovereignty, and His grace. The end of verse 27. Sorry, the end of verse 26. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. What's he talking about there? The nations. God has determined their appointed times. Babylon rose up. Right on schedule. Babylon fell. Right on schedule. Rome rose up. Right on schedule. And fell. Right on schedule. The United States rose up. Right on schedule. God has appointed the times. If the United States falls, or when the United States falls, it will be right on schedule. No, no, no nation comes to prominence and no nation exists that has not been appointed by God because He has appointed their times. Not only that, but He has appointed the boundaries of their habitation, their borders. You think men sit down and draw on a map of lines and say, this is where our borders are going to be. God does that. He is sovereign and He determines which nation will advance how far before it falls. It is God who has determined how far Hitler's Third Reich would go before it fell. It is God who determined how far Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar would expand their reach before they fell. He has appointed not only the timing of all of the nations, but He has sovereignly appointed the boundaries of their habitation so that no nation can reach out and say, we will go this far without God having said, this is how far you will go and no further. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, God decides not only how long a nation stays on the map, but how far it will reach before it is sent into decline by God. That's what Paul's saying. He is the ruler of all nature. He is the ruler of all nations. And He has appointed their time. And He has appointed the boundaries of their habitation. Now men don't like that. We bristle at the thought that God would sovereignly choose and raise up nations and put down kings and work in the affairs of men. But yet, Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, Our God sits in the heavens and He does what He pleases. Psalm 2, The nations rise up against the Lord and against His anointed. The Lord sits in heaven and He laughs at that. This is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing before Him. And He rules in the affairs of men. And He does according to His will among all the hosts of the earth. And nobody can say to Him, What have you done? 
Nobody can say that. Why? He has appointed their times, and he has determined the boundaries of their habitation. There's a reason that God did this. Some people, they hate that teaching so much, they say, well, this doesn't refer to the timing and the seasons of nations and the boundaries of nations. It refers to the seasons of the year, winter, spring, summer, and fall. And the boundaries refer to the boundaries of land that God has only determined the land will go this far and the waves will come this far. That's just baloney. Look at verse 25. What is he talking about? The nations. He's made from one man every nation. He's talking about the nations when he said God has appointed their times for their rise and for their fall. And God has set the boundaries of their habitation and said you go this farther, this far, and no further. Deuteronomy chapter 32 when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, He separated the sons of men. He set the boundaries of the peoples. God says, this is where the United States will be and no further. He determines your time on the map and your place on the map. He rules in the affairs of men and over all of the nations. Why? Because He is Lord of all and He is the giver of all things and He is the governor of all things. He upholds all things by the word of His power and He directs it all. No king rises without His notice. He raises up kings. He puts down kings. And Nebuchadnezzar said His dominion is an everlasting dominion from generation to generation. He rules in the affairs of men. Now why is this significant? This is significant because the Apostle Paul has to take their eyes off of themselves and off of their idols and give them a perspective of this grand, glorious God, this magnificent God who is God. Because no man will ever humble himself before God until his pride is assaulted and he is seen for the helpless, hopeless, destitute, desperate, needy creature that he is. They're self-sufficient. And Paul wants them to understand, you are not self-sufficient. You need everything, and you're dependent upon the one who gives everything, and He is sovereign over all. And He wants their eyes to see not their idols, but this grand, glorious, sovereign, majestic God. Because it is only when men see that, that they are humbled before Him and will receive the grace of salvation. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Let no one deceive you, my friends. The Apostle Paul is humbling them. He's humbling them. You are nothing, he tells them. You have nothing, and you're dependent upon Him who is everything and has everything. And you ought to be humbled by that fact. He is Lord of all. He is sovereign of all. He is ruler of all, owner of all, and the great glorious God of all of nature and of all the nations. And we can only bow before Him. Let's do that now. Our Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You that we can rest in You who is sovereign. And we thank you for this passage of Scripture which has elevated our minds and our eyes off of the idols that we create in our hearts and lifted them to you. You are a grand and glorious and awesome God. And we pray that you would deliver us from thinking which is not worthy of you. And fashion again in our minds that concept of you which is wholly worthy of you in your glory and your majesty and your grandeur. We thank you for this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.